Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. I'm your host, Bob Tarantino. I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, David Steinberg, and we're going to be talking about composer agreements in film and TV projects. But before we get too far into the discussion, our usual disclaimer. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. So David, one way that you've often framed talking about film, TV, and music is to describe it as two worlds that are colliding. And there's a lot of terminology when it comes to music rights that film and TV producers are not familiar with. And so maybe as a starting point here, do you want to outline some of the terminology that we need to be familiar with in order to understand what it is that we're going to be trying to do here? Sure, we can start there. Um, basically, you know, the two, the two industries, and if, and if we talk about them in general terms, there's the film television industry and the music industry. Each one of them have their own language. There's terminology that's used. There are, uh, there's phraseology that's used. And, you know, there are many cases where um, the terminology and, and phraseology is not understood um, by the other industry. Um, and in many cases, there's the assumption that they do understand, but they might not have it right. So to get specifically to your, to your question, I think the right starting point when we're talking about music and composition is to really divide things into two general areas, which are publishing rights and master recording rights. Um, so when we talk about publishing, we're talking about copyright in the underlying composition. So if we are um, engaging a composer to write music uh, for our show, um, the first thing that they're going to do is compose the music. There's copyright in that composition, and that's what we call the publishing rights. And from those publishing rights stem a number of uh, entitlements. Um, for instance, there's the public performance right. You know, most of our listeners know, probably know about SOCAN in Canada. ASCAP BMI in the United States. And that's the public performance rights that we're talking about when uh, referring to those performing rights organizations. And that stems from publishing rights, which are related to the composition. The second right uh, that comes into play is the synchronization right. Uh, basically synchronizing musical composition, again, a publishing right, with a visual image, TV show, television commercial, feature film, whatever. Uh, that's another major area of, of uh, publishing. A third major area is the mechanical or the reproduction right of that composition. So the most obvious example, uh, back in the old days when we were using physical units like CDs and vinyl, there was literally a mechanical royalty that was paid. And then there are miscellaneous rights like using uh, lyrics for various purposes um, that would require a license. So that is all on the side of the publishing rights, 
that relate to the composition. Nothing to do with the recording. So often when I talk about this publicly, I'll refer to the Beatles and I'll say the composition is the song written by Lennon and McCartney. It has nothing to do with the Beatles. It's just Lennon McCartney wrote that song and they have a publisher that either owns or administers the copyright in that song. Then the Beatles are all about the master recording. That's the group of people that recorded uh, the master of that composition. Which brings me to the second category here, which is the master or master recording. That's actually the recording of the score. So when we start the negotiation with, uh, with a composer, often the very first things that are discussed are who is going to own the publishing, in other words, the copyright and the underlying compositions, and who is going to own the recording that the composer performs on and creates. Yeah, great. And, and look, I mean, I think it's also helpful to sort of set the level here in terms of what kind of the conventional expectations are. So, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong in thinking this. I mean, my approach, particularly when we're acting for producers, which you know, we do a significant amount of time, not exclusively, but a lot of our uh, work is on the producer side. When I'm thinking about a producer engaging a composer to create a score for a film, my default assumption is the producer is going to own everything, right? The producer is paying for the, the services of the composer. They're usually paying for the materials um, that are going to actually physically be delivered, or at least that the cost of those materials is embedded in the fee that's paid to the composer. And so my default assumption is the, the producer, excuse me, is going to own the master recording rights and they're going to own the publishing rights. And any sort of deviation from that default is really something that needs to be negotiated. Is that, are you, is that sort of consistent with your experience and, and the advice that you give? Yes, absolutely. And in, in fact, I think in the great majority of cases, uh, the producer does end up owning the publishing rights and the master recordings. The thing to keep in mind though, is that uh, the composer is always gonna be entitled to what they call the writer's share of public performance royalties that are payable by organizations such as SOCAN. So even when the producer owns 100% of the publishing rights and administers them and owns 100% of the master recording, it does not mean that the composer is gonna get nothing. They're gonna get that writer's share of public performance royalties, which can incidentally be quite significant in certain kinds of productions that have certain kinds of exploitation. But yes, I agree with you that that's the normal starting point. I find that um, sometimes the swing in the negotiation is related to the fee. In other words, um, if a producer wants to engage a composer and really doesn't have a lot of money to pay them and is offering them a very small fee, which let's say is you know, below industry standard and custom, the composer may say, okay, I'll do it for that reduced fee, but only if I can retain all or part of my publishing, which of course just gives them uh, more revenue at the end of the day from the exploitation of the compositions. 
So I find that that's often the swing in the negotiation. But if the producer is paying a proper fee, a more of an industry standard fee, uh, yeah, absolutely, they're going to they're going to normally require one hundred percent of publishing and master. Right, and so I, I want to pick up on on that discussion about publishing and writer share, and sort of loop back to the the notion that there's terminology here, which is a little tricky to understand. But just before we get to that, I just want to pick up on that that point that you mentioned about you know certain types of productions can generate significant amounts of public performance royalties. I, I mean, obviously, I hit movie is going to generate lots of money um, because there are fees that are payable by broadcasters and, and um, theaters that you know pay for public performance but people may not be aware that there can be significant amounts of money that are generated by television shows and in particular you know stripped shows where you know like animation productions where they just get sort of rebroadcast over and over and over again in lots and lots of different jurisdictions. And so that can end up being a significant source of income for the composer. And as you said, that's not really something that the producer ever has access to. It, it would be extremely unusual, I think it's safe to say, for a producer to ever acquire the writer's share of public performance royalties. I think we used to see that in some very sort of... Um, not peculiar, but certainly um, idiosyncratic situations. I can recall about 20 years ago, uh, there were there were certain producers who, who took the position that they should be acquiring the writer's share as well. But um, we don't really tend to see that anymore, I don't think. Um, so I just want to pick up then also on that, the notion of the writer's share, um, because I think that gets tied into this tricky terminology which comes up and which people can struggle to understand. So when the writer's share that, that we've been talking about is the writer's share of public performance. But I think you will sometimes encounter in negotiations people who will say the composer is getting the writer's share and they don't mean the writer's share of public performance or they don't mean just the writer's share of public performance. Yeah. They mean a share of the publishing revenues. So do Correct. you want to sort of pick up on that and, and explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to do without a, a whiteboard, you know, available where everybody can see it. But just going back to where I started, which were the sort of general uh, basket of publishing rights, public performance, synchronization, mechanical licensing. Um, some writers, and, and you're hitting the nail on the head here, the, the, the language of the industry. When they're talking about um, uh, writer's share, they very well may, may be saying, we also want 50% of whatever mechanical licensing income that you get, or 50% of whatever synchronization income that you ever receive. They may even be asking for 50% of the publisher's share um, although probably not on public performance royalties. So I think um, those are negotiated points where sometimes the producer will give on them, sometimes they won't. Um, and in almost all cases, the producer will say, we will share in things like synchronization fees or mechanical licensing fees to the extent that they're paid by a third party to us. In other words, if we're getting money from it, from a record company or something like that, we'll share it with you, otherwise, no. So, um, you know, back when we were doing deals that had DVD and that was a huge component of what we were doing, 
producers would often say to the composer, listen, we're not going to pay you mechanical royalties on the manufacture of DVDs. Um, if somebody else pays those royalties to us, in other words, if we license the product to a studio and the studio is paying mechanicals, we'll share those with you. But if we're just sort of doing it or nobody agrees to pay us that share, we're not gonna give you anything. So that was very, very common and still is very common in composer agreements. But you're, you're absolutely right that when we talk about writer share, it can mean different things. When we talk about my other favorite is co-publishing. People will throw around that term, co-publishing. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to co-own it? Does it mean that you're both going to administer your respective portions? Or is the producer going to administer 100% and pay you 50? It can mean lots of different things. And in many cases, people that work in the, in the uh, music industry will understand what it means in the context of the conversation. But many times film and TV people won't necessarily get that nuance. Yeah, and that's why I think it's absolutely critical at the deal memo stage or the term sheet stage to make sure that you have experienced music counsel who's advising the film producer because they can inadvertently agree to something that they weren't intending to give up um, by agreeing to terms like, oh, the writer gets to keep the writer's share or the writer, you know, it's a co-publishing deal. And, and without sort of an understanding of the implications of those phrases, you can end up in a situation where the, the producer is, you know, seriously impacting the, their entitlements down the road with respect to revenues. Um, and also that, you know, potential headaches in terms, if, if you have a true sort of co-publishing administrator or co-publishing arrangement where there's co-administration, right? Where like the composer is somehow administering their own, their own share, you can end up in, in some really sticky situations there. I guess one other, th an additional thing, which we should talk about is what the, how royalties work in the contemporary market, right? So you've alluded already to there, there was a time where when DVD sales were a significant source of exploitation or form of exploitation, they could be a, a significant source of income. Um, we've sort of moved away from physical exploitation now and, and we're seeing much more digital exploitation, particularly streaming. In, in what way, if at all, have, have sort of royalty entitlements or negotiations around royalties changed to reflect that current reality that, that most exploitation now is, is streaming? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and it's really changed a lot over the last, uh, well, 30 years. Um, because when we were dealing primarily with physical units, um, obviously, starting with vinyl and cassette tapes and then moving to compact discs um, and now moving into the, into the digital age. Well, not even moving, it's, it's, it's old now, <laughs> the digital age. But um, we used to talk about soundtrack royalties uh, paid to the composer. And there were situations where soundtracks could sell. You know, it would be the soundtrack to Jaws or Halloween or, you know, these soundtracks would actually sell. And when we were talking about physical units, we would usually be talking about a percentage of suggested retail price or list price. That became what we call PPD, which is published price to dealers, sort of an enhanced wholesale price. And royalties would be calculated on those um, 
on those royalty bases. That would be the basis upon which we calculate the percentage. So if the composer was getting, let's say, 11% of suggested retail list price, we would have a calculation around that. Sometimes it would be as calculated by a record company that the producer would license the soundtrack to. These days, we're really more or less getting into percentages of net receipts. So in other words, if, if a soundtrack is, let's say, put up on all of the general streaming platforms, you know, the Spotify's, the Apple Music's, et cetera, um, and there's money made from that, um, and of course, you know, the, the way in which money is generated and royalties are paid is very different than what it used to be through the traditional sale of music. But if any money is actually received by the producer um, from those platforms um, for streaming of the music, um, what we're finding now is more of a percentage um, sharing with the composer if they're entitled to anything at all, and that's been negotiated, uh, a percentage based on what we actually receive in our pocket. Right, which I think is in a lot of ways is a little more comprehensible for people, right? I mean, wh when you had sort of the, the royalty structure based on a sort of like a conventional music industry formula with, you know, published price to dealer and, and all kinds of deductions, it, it was an odd sort of mix with the way that film and TV exploitation and accounting kind of happens. Whereas my, my own view is that it's, it's frankly just a lot simpler to give the composer sort of a net profit participation in the, you know, in essentially the same way that you would give an actor a net profit participation. Maybe, maybe the, the sort of revenue source is more limited to just the, the, the soundtrack or the score, but it's, it's essentially the same formula. You're not, you're not sort of introducing or trying to interject kind of a, a music industry uh, structure into the middle of a, of a film and TV project. There's lots of different pieces of, of composer agreements and, and these sorts of business deals that we could, we could pick on. One thing I think that often gets overlooked is we've been talking in this conversation as if there's really only two people involved, right? You, or, you know, two sort of entities, you have a producer and a composer. It can get more complicated than that, obviously, right? Particularly if there's, um, you know, if it's sort of an orchestral score, it might not be just the composer who's delivering services or who, who's performing. There may be other individuals, there may be, you know, musicians, there may be um, additional composers, there may be arrangers, there may be other people that the composer has to engage in order to, you know, complete the services and, and deliver the material to the to the producer and so i think one thing that we want to flag for for people who are thinking about that is is making sure that the composer agreement takes account of that that there are other people potentially who will be providing those services and that those people need to sign grants of rights as well right they need to sign some kind of certificate of authorship or some other assignment of rights which moves the rights at least to the composer who can then grant them to the producer or moves them directly to the producer so that you don't end up having a situation where there are a bunch of people who have contributed to this material whose rights aren't properly accounted for. 
Right. The other thing I wanted to flag was, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, because this is something which I think is quite challenging, but which, frankly, you know, we in the independence production space, we don't sort of encounter all that often. And that's the, the use of unionized personnel. Right. So often, most often, our clients will be engaging composers on a non-union basis and explicitly stating that in the composer agreement. But things get complicated if you're engaging somebody who's an American Federation of Musicians member or a Canadian Federation of Musicians member or, you know, has uh, is a SODRAC member, for example. So what kind of advice do you give people who are who find themselves in that sort of scenario? Well, the, the, there are a couple of things to take into account. First of all, I always ask up front um, whether uh, there's been a request that the agreement be governed by uh, CFFM here in Canada or AFFM in the United States, and we see what the producer's feelings are about that. Uh, in, in many, many cases, they do not want to be um, bound to any union rules and the agreements are often made on a non-union basis. Um, however, there are certain circumstances, let's say like where a broadcaster is uh, requiring that you be governed by the musician's union, that can happen. In other words, everything that we license uh, music-wise has to be governed by the union. That's just the way we do things. And you as the producer, uh, of this program, you also have to abide and sign on. So that can happen. Um, CFFM has some rules about Canadian content production, uh, which, which make the application of the union rules, um, you know, quite palatable for Canadian producers uh, to the extent that they are signing on. Um, and you mentioned SODRAC, and, and that's a really interesting one. We always want to know right up front uh, whether the composer is a SODRAC member, because SODRAC asserts rights that um, cannot be waived. So in other words, if you are signing a SODRAC member, you are going to be, um, you know, subject to those SODRAC rules. Um, not necessarily the end of the world, but people have to go in with their eyes open and understand what the implications are. Right. And the best way that they can equip themselves to handle those complications is to hire an experienced music lawyer. Um, we, we've gotten into some pretty gnarly kind of twisty parts of composer agreements here. Is there anything else that you think we should be highlighting? Any other particularly tricky areas that are often the, the results or, or, or the, the uh, attention of, of negotiations or, or which people sometimes overlook, unfortunately? Well, I think that you want to have a very good definition of, of the fees and the costs involved so that you are not, um, you know, lacking a mutual understanding as to who's covering what, be that on the composer side or on the producer side. We want to make sure that credits uh, provisions are dealt with properly, the usual stuff that we'd have in any uh, entertainment contract. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, you know, sort of where the money is. And, you know, when we're talking about film and TV, um, particularly after the music has been composed and embedded uh, in the production, where is the money really generated and is it valuable? Um, so 
you know, it's primarily generated through the public performance royalties, um, be it through uh, theaters or television or, you know, any other platforms where the show is being exploited. Um, and those public performance royalties can be worth a lot. Um, you know, I've always said if I could choose one piece of music that I would own, just one, it would be the Simpsons theme by Danny Elfman because it's played 17,000 times a day on free television around the world. And it's monstrously valuable in that kind of situation. And, you know, I was once speaking with um, someone who was a writer on several Simpsons episodes who said to me, kind of laughed, and he said, you know, we have those songs embedded in the series. And I said, yeah, those hilarious little songs that you have in some of the episodes. He said, well, we love those because the writers are allowed to write the lyrics. And I went, wait a minute, are you telling me you get writer's share on performance royalties? And he said, you got it. That's and amazing. That, that was unbelievable. So, you know, they were always happy when they got to embed a song using their words. Right. Um, that's where the real money is in film and TV is public performance. It's not so much on mechanicals or synchronization licenses to third parties. It's really about public performance. So one, I guess one final point just before we wrap up here and, and just to pivot off of what you just said is it's the, the default assumption for a composer agreement generally is that the composer is going to be writing score or underscore. In other words, they're going to be writing musical compositions that are not accompanied by lyrics. If they are writing lyrics or if they are writing something which is, I'm going to refer to it as a song. So something, you know, generally that has lyrics that is intended to be exploited outside of the show right it's intended to be kind of a commercial radio hit um you know and sometimes that happens to a theme song let's say um you know like the friends uh theme song you know ended up actually charting on the billboard charts it was released as a separate single but those sorts of contributions musical contributions generally are treated on slightly different terms than the rest of the score. So a, a composer agreement, if there is a plan to have songs in the, in, the, in the soundtrack, which are being created by the composer, usually the composer agreement is going to treat those separately and differently. There'll be other entitlements, there, the, the royalty splits may be different, the ownership may even be different. Um, and and there will usually be additional fees which are payable for those uh, for those deliverables. But that that's also something I think that's worth flagging for people. So look, we've covered a, an awful lot of ground on some, some complicated stuff, um, all of which is great. One thing that we haven't talked about is licensing pre-existing music. And so we won't have time to do that today, but I'm hopeful that you'll join us on our next episode when we go through how it is that film and TV producers can obtain rights to pre-existing music. Maybe there's a popular song that they heard on the radio that they want to include in their movie, or there's a, you know, a deep album cut that they loved when they were a kid that they've always thought would be perfect for a particular scene. And so next time around, we will cover the considerations that need to be taken into account in obtaining those sorts of rights and, and what those sorts of deals look like. So David, thanks so much for, for joining us today on the podcast. 
always appreciate you uh, being so generous with your time. And, and thank you to our listeners for joining us here on the Dentist Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. Please visit our blog at entertainmentmedialawsignal.com and please join us next time here on the podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.